0: I'm Nita, and you're listening to Slaying in Real Life. Welcome to our very first episode. If you missed the trailer, let me explain what adventure we will be taking together. Slaying in Real Life is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer-inspired true crime podcast. Each week, we will recap an episode for an ultimate rewatch experience, and then delve into a true crime case inspired by that week's baddie. For our first episode, we have to start with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie from 1992. It's not completely canon with the television series, and I am aware that it's ridiculous. But it is Buffy and I must cover it for no other reason than me loving it. If you haven't seen this cringe fest, I highly recommend it. During the opening, cheerleading, and shopping scene, we're introduced to Buffy Summers and her group of Valley Girl-esque friends. Let's introduce the gang of these just about to graduate seniors. Buffy is played by Christy Swanson. Co-Queen B-frenemy Kimberly is played by Hilary Swank. Fellow cheerleader Nikki is played by Paris Vaughn. And token airhead Jennifer is played by Michelle Abrams. The star of this group, of course, is Buffy Summers. She has a great life, distracted parents, and a boyfriend named Jeffrey who seems to adore her. However, when she is accosted by a creepy old guy claiming to want to give her a birthright, She doesn't tell anyone. Buffy lets him put her in a life-threatening situation and her world is completely shaken. Buffy learns that vampires not only exist, but she's responsible for killing them as the chosen slayer of her generation. She doesn't want the responsibility. Yet when she finds out that her gross watcher put her in danger, she punches him with her new slayer strength and she kind of likes it. Buffy starts training with her creepy new watcher, Merrick, played by Donald Sutherland. Merrick doesn't know which set he showed up to each day, and Buffy never knew which guy she was going to get. The weirdo twirling his mustache, or the too-interested grandfather asking her about her menstrual cramps. Either way, the two had no chemistry, and Sutherland's performance was confusing and amusing. Buffy's world becomes even more complicated by the fact that her perfect life was so shallow that her needing support crumbled it to its very foundation. Her boyfriend, played by Randall Battenkoff, immediately begins cheating on her. Her friends talk behind her back and reject her, and she has to spend her nights training instead of being a teenager. In the process, she has to become allies with Pike, a drunk older guy that she bullies earlier in the movie and feels superior to. Let's talk about the gorgeous Pike for a second. We first meet Pike in the shopping scene very early on in the movie. He's established to be a thrash dude who sneaks into movie theaters with his best friend Benny, who is played by David Arquette. The same night that Pike meets Buffy, Benny is picked off by a vampire and Merrick saves Pike just in time. Later on, Benny comes to visit Pike, but Benny is now clearly a demon and Pike wants nothing to do with him. Pike meets Buffy later on when he's trying to flee town, and the same vampires that turned Benny into a vampire are now trying to catch Pike. Buffy sees them, and she saves his ass. When she brings him home, he's a jerk to her, and they end up parting ways awkwardly. When Buffy gets tired of this drama, she finds that she can't just go back to her old life. One of her friends, Gruler, was turned into a vampire and disrupts a basketball game. She has to out herself by chasing him off the court so that he doesn't hurt anyone. Pike shows up and runs interference while Buffy has her showdown. Buffy can now see that her friend has been replaced by a demon, and she sees him killed before she comes to face to face with the master vampire that she has been dreaming of for weeks. She's not only dreamed of Lothos, this master vampire, in her dreams she has seen him kill different slayers for generations. Lotho's minion, Amelin was the one to change her friend Grueler in order to lure her out. But this time, Merrick sees something different in his slayer, and he involves himself. He pulls a knife on the vampire, knowing it's a fight he's going to lose. When Merrick sacrifices himself to save Buffy, who is not ready to face him, she's left with no one. She tries to confide in her friends, but they abandon her once and for all. They immediately think that she's having an affair, and it's the reason that she's been distant with them. When she tries to talk to them about something other than dating and dances, they freak out on her for changing her priorities and they freeze her out of the group. Without Merrick's guidance, Buffy wants to give up, to burn all ties with the lifestyle that she blames for the loss of her senior experience. She tries to break it off with Pike and ignores her duty in favor of a dance. Maybe if she pretends like things are normal, normal could become a reality again. Instead, at the dance, her old friends tease her and her now ex-boyfriend brought another girl instead. Not only did she wait for a limo that never came, the new date is a former friend that she trusted. Jeffrey flaunts the new relationship and even deflowers poor Jenny in the parking lot without even putting up the hood of his convertible. It's so gross, horrible, a high school nightmare. The night then becomes a high school nightmare for the rest of the class when Lothos attacks the dance with a gang of vampires that begin to feed on everybody. Kimberly invited them indoors thinking that they were dead seniors from the school and therefore invited. They say to send Buffy out or they'll kill everybody. She gears up with the weapons that Pike showed up to the dance with, wearing a suit no less. Buffy doesn't let herself become the sacrifice. Instead, she puts on a leather jacket and she comes after Lothos herself. During the big showdown, Buffy starts to become enthralled by the very extra Ruggerhauer acting as Lothos. However, she's able to pull herself from the trance and set his face on fire. This is after killing his favorite minion, played by Paul Rubens. His death scene is perfection and was completely improvised. If you're not going to watch this movie, at least YouTube that scene. After disabling Lothos, Buffy runs back to the gym and Lothos follows her. But Buffy's in super badass mode now and kills him before slow dancing with Pike in the middle of the carnage. The principal takes control of the situation by giving the staked vampires detention slips. This principal is played by Stephen Root, and his performance is hilarious. While trying to talk Buffy out of her lateness and absences earlier in the movie, he attempts to humanize himself by sharing his experiences with drugs in the 60s, and now he's still trying to assert some kind of control in the face of literal demons. Every single one of the fight scenes are amazing for a super easy to miss reason. I watched this movie with earphones on for the first time this year because no one in my household wanted to watch this seven times for research. In this movie, I became aware that most of it had a really disjointed backtrack that can only be described as reactions during the attack. It made the movie that much funnier. Okay, with the summary of the movie done, let's get onto the fun facts and backgrounds on this gem. This screenplay was written by Josh Whedon and sold to Sand Dollar Productions, which is actually Dolly Parton's production company. There, it was discovered by female director Fran Ruble-Cousy. is a director most commonly known for Orgasmo from 1997. She expanded the characters along with Whedon, and this is also why she is later credited with the television, inside the television credits. She expanded that first script with Whedon, and this became part of the contract in the name's usage. The movie did okay at the box office, but confused critics. This is not always an indicator of how good a movie is, but in this case, Whedon was disappointed in how far the finished product was from his original script. There was a lot of pressure during the project to rewrite certain scenes to make them peppier and easier to digest. It was also a lot darker. Merrick commits suicide to avoid becoming turned into a vampire by Lothos, and Buffy ends up burning down the gym. Whedon also heavily criticized the decision that was made to forego much of the vampire makeup. He didn't think that the finished product made a clear enough distinction between which of the people on the screen were humans and which of them were demons. In addition to differing artistic ideas about the concept, the filming was also limited to only five weeks because Perry was filming for 90210 at the time. Disjointed, corny, and maybe a little silly? Absolutely. A hilarious black comedy with unforgettable one-liners and a kick-ass soundtrack? Also, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, this isn't canon, but the idea of Buffy remains the same. Buffy keeps beating the odds because she embraces her strengths as a person. Her keen fashion sense saves her in this version, but Sarah Michelle Gellar's version of Buffy is just as true to herself. She follows her own rules to this prophecy. She isn't like the other Slayers, and that unpredictability of her response to that calling is what keeps her swinging. Okay, now let's talk about the differences between the movie and the television series. First, in the movie version, Buffy is a senior, and in the television series, she's a sophomore that's transferring before the end of the year. The weird mole trademark and menstrual cramp superpowers are omitted in the television series entirely, and Joyce is very different in the two different projects. In the movie, Joyce feels like an alcoholic party mom, and that is not canon with the Joyce that we see in Buffy's later flashbacks from the television series. Pike is also never mentioned again, This could be chalked up to the relationship never progressing beyond that dance, but I also think it's safe to say that Buffy goes into Sunnydale very early on in her dating history. She was definitely not rebounding from a sexually active relationship with Jeffrey or pining after bad boy Pike. Senior Buffy and sophomore Buffy exist in very few continuous universes. Okay, so last, a rating. Based on writing that follows some kind of sense, disagreements about where the acting direction was going and its overall feel, I would have to give this a 2 out of 5. For me, it doesn't bomb because it has enough moments of humor to be rewatchable. However, I do have to admit that if I was basing this solely on nostalgia and my love of campy horror comedies, I would bump this up to a 3. I think that a bigger budget in the makeup department would have made the world ro- a world of difference. Okay, before we get into the true crime case of the week, I need to give a shout out to the true crime community that follows podcast. Especially Morbid, a true crime podcast. I would not have gotten through the pandemic without you. Ash and Elena manifested what they wanted, supported each other as sisters, and helped create a community that now lives beyond that original idea. They inspired me then and continue to inspire me with their success and love for what they have nurtured with my fellow weirdos. Thank you. Okay, with that fangirling out of the way, let's get into our very first case. For our true crime half of the episodes, I intend to tell the story from the perspective of the victim as often as possible. I believe that keeping the focus on the humanity of the situation helps keep me honest and feel like the right information is being projected out into the universe. As any other true crime podcast, these episodes should always be accompanied with self-care and awareness of triggers for you. With that said, The crime scene photos in this case are connected to every keyword, and there is almost no way to stop yourself from seeing them in the search results. If that is something that will ruin your day, like me, here is your warning. Google accordingly. What inspired this week's case is the idea of a real-life vampire cult turning out to be, well, real. Buffy the Vampire Slayer works because this idea is so ridiculous. We can relate to Buffy because of the real-life struggles that she goes through and the friendships that she cultivates, but we also get to escape with her through her adventures fighting the forces of darkness. Loving vampire lore is something that everyone growing up in the 90s was exposed to because it was such a mainstay of culture. At the time, society was also struggling with satanic panic, and the media revolving around tragedies like this so it was something that was popular, but it was also very much pretend and taboo. But what if it wasn't fake? What if someone told you that a vampire cult really did exist in your town? Yet instead of wanting to prey on you, they were offering to solve all of your problems and give you eternal life. In 1995, Heather Windorf was a very typical 14-year-old who felt misunderstood by her parents. She was the younger sister of 17-year-old Jennifer, and Jennifer stood out for everything that Heather wasn't. Jennifer was a popular cheerleader who had a college scholarship lined up, and she had just gotten a new car from her parents for her birthday. On the flip side, Heather was artistic and didn't follow social norms. She had a Barbie hanging from her backpack and was drawn to darker artwork. Heather found the very escape and acceptance that she was looking for in a group of kids from school who lived a life of what they believed was vampirism. Sixteen-year-old Rod Farrell led this vampire clan under the understanding that he was a 500-year-old vampire who could also make his clan members immortal. Okay, so let's talk about how weird that actually is in high school. In the beginning, we're not talking about blood drinking. We are talking about live-action role-playing, acting out a game similar to Dungeons & Dragons. This might be considered nerdy or not exactly mainstream, but it wasn't dangerous or malicious in any way. At first, Farrell and his friends, including misfit Heather Windorf, played out these ideas through a live-action role-playing game called Vampire the Masquerade. No one really took it seriously and considered Farrell's alter ego visago to be just that. They thought it was an extension of the character that he played during the game. He talked often about killing people, but that was the point of the game. In the Masquerade, you weren't the hero, you were the vampire, you were the predator. Heather talks about this time in her life the way that any 14-year-old talks about a phase they went through in high school. The game was fun and she liked the idea of doing something that her parents didn't approve of. Heather's alter ego became something secret that made her feel special. She even wrote letters in this vampire persona to the other teens in the group. However, soon the game wasn't enough for Farrell. He began throwing huge acid trip parties at a rundown building that Farrell dubbed Vampire Hotel. Here, under the effects of psychedelic drugs, Farrell took this game one step further. Farrell announced that he actually was a 500-year-old vampire. Most of his friends did not like this turn of events, and it thinned out his friend group considerably. The ones that stayed decided that they were okay with this turn of events, and they began having rituals where they cut themselves and drink blood from one another. Farrell's entire plan was to create a vampire family that would live together. Heather's family began seeing the changes in her and also became aware of Pharaoh's growing fixation on their young daughter. In addition to carrying around samurai swords, bragged about hurting animals and was known to kill them. It's also important to note the age difference between these two. These teenagers were not in the same class. Heather was only 14 and Rob was 16. Heather was still very impressionable and did not take this guy seriously. However, her family did. They communicated their worries as a family and told their oldest daughter about what had been happening. Heather was breaking curfew, breaking rules, and having issues at school for the first time. Her interest in death was becoming too much for them, and it was becoming unhealthy for Heather. It felt like their prayers had been answered when Rod's family ended up moving out of the area. They hoped that that would cut the communication between the two. However, Rod did not take this move the way that they hoped that they would— and he began calling Heather constantly, racking up long-distance charges, and this was the family's last straw. They cut off this last bit of communication between the two completely. Rod told the other cult members that Heather was being abused at home, and he launched a rescue mission in November of 1996. He drove 750 miles to Heather's home in Florida Rod told his girlfriend Chastity that his friend Scott and Dana Cooper were going to come with them and they were going to help Heather run away and start a vampire family in New Orleans. These three people were his new family members. Chastity Kesey was Rod's girlfriend and possibly pregnant at the time of the murders. Dana was a troubled girl who didn't believe Rod meant what he said he was going to do, but he also wasn't stopped from escalating his behavior. And Scott Anderson was a poor teen who lived in a shack and fed his younger siblings with leftovers from his job at McDonald's. All three of these teens had something in common. They felt unloved and unseen due to circumstances beyond their control. Sometimes it was mental illness, sometimes it was poverty, sometimes it was just loneliness and wanting to fit in. Rob saw this and in his eyes, he gave them each a home. Sharing blood and sharing this lifestyle was his end goal and he thought that Heather felt the same way. He simply wanted to give the same escape to Heather that he gave to the rest of his family members. In his eyes, she was a damsel in distress. Mistreatment by her parents is something that Heather not only denies saying, she denies it happening. She was a morbid girl who was going through a confusing time in her life. He disliked her parents in the same way every 14-year-old does as they learn about who they are. This in no way meant that she wanted them dead. Heather admits that Rod talked about her running away with him often. She was scared of telling him no, and also never thought that he would show up on their doorstep and demand she come with him. She didn't believe that he or any of his cult members were vampires. Heather didn't believe in vampires. She disliked the rebellion of doing something so taboo. She never imagined how Rod was going to tie up what he considered loose ends. Rod kept reminding Heather of the hell that her life had become. The hell meant something different to each of them. The hell that Heather described her family life as consisted of her parents controlling her behavior in the form of curfews. It was an abuse. Why would Heather think that these vent sessions to her friends would amount to anything other than support? Rod and his new friends offered her an escape, and Heather felt like it was an unwinnable situation. She thought that leaving was the best way to leave her family out of this quickly escalating situation. She knew that she couldn't tell them but she did write a goodbye note telling them that she loved them and that she was sorry. Heather also never thought that she was going alone. Heather believed that her best friend and former girlfriend of Rod Farrell, Janine LeClaire, would be coming along. In fact, Janine was supposed to meet them at her house and had even drawn Rod a blueprint of the Windorf house so he knew exactly how to get them out undetected. Heather admitted to wanting to run away and Janine was supposed to come with them. They plan to meet at Heather's house and live in Louisiana, where there were supposedly laxer attitudes towards vampirism. But Janine never makes it that night. She's actually caught at her mom's house before she's able to leave. Heather wants to wait for her, but the other cult members tell her that they would pick Janine up on their way out of town. There was something more important that they needed to do first. When the Fourteens picked up Heather, they first took her to the cemetery. Apparently, Rod wanted to turn Heather into a vampire before they moved away to start their new life together. They took LSD and conducted a ritual where they drank from one another while hallucinating in the graveyard. After that, their car ended up breaking down. So now, the drug adult teens decide to steal Heather's parents' car on their way out of town. According to Heather, she gave them permission to steal her family's car, but Rod and Scott agreed not to go into the house. That was the plan. They were able to get the extra keys, or they had keys from Heather. I saw multiple accounts of both. Then, Scott and Rod were supposed to meet Heather, Dana, and Chastity with the explorer. Scott and Rod went into the garage. Rod took a crowbar from the garage and decided to enter the home. And Anderson followed. The two found Mr. Windorf sleeping on the couch and could hear Mrs. Windorf in the shower. They perused around the house, picking things to steal, However, it quickly became clear that this was no simple robbery as Rod began beating the sleeping man with a crowbar. Rod hit Mr. Windorf 22 times. The noise alerted Mrs. Windorf who came through the kitchen into the living room to check on her husband. She becomes a witness to his murder and she throws the only thing she had on hand at the intruders, hot coffee. Rod became enraged and hit her with the crowbar on the back of the skull. She died instantly. However, this didn't stop him from beating her motionless body beyond recognition. Later, he would be straight-up offended that she had the nerve to throw coffee at him. He believed that her actions led to her being killed. His flippant comments only further prove that he's a complete monster. With the couple murdered, Scott and Rod set their bodies on fire, mutilated the father, danced around the room, and then robbed them. Richard Windorf was only 49 and a manager at Cork & Seal. His partner Ruth was 54. She was an involved mother who volunteered at her daughter's high school often. Their bodies were later found by Heather's 17-year-old sister, Jennifer. Jennifer was actually out past her curfew that night and doesn't make it home until around 10 p.m. She thinks her father is asleep on the couch and she creeps past him. After settling her things in her bedroom, Jennifer calls her boyfriend to let him know that she made it home safe. When they hang up, she goes to the kitchen to make a snack. When she gets there, she finds her mom's destroyed body. Jennifer turns, sees her father, and realizes that they are both dead. From here, she immediately calls the police. She doesn't know whether or not the killer is still in the house, and she can't find her sister, so she reports her now 15-year-old sister missing to the police. In the hours after finding her parents' body, Jennifer also realizes that the car has been stolen. When asked if she knew who could have done this, Jennifer apparently pointed the finger at her sister Heather and implied that she knew that her friends were vampires. She told the investigators that her sister had once asked Jennifer if she ever thought of killing her parents and thought that Rod was capable of doing so. When I was researching this, I saw that these were not direct quotes, these were things that were later retold. Jennifer currently does not stand by these statements. Either way, the police have two reasons for wanting to find Heather. One, she could be an additional victim, or the victim of an abduction, or she could be part of the murder and is now on the run. Roth told the investigators that on their way to Baton Rouge, the teens were actually pulled over in the Stolen Explorer, but he was able to talk his way out of any consequences. The teens were on the run for three days before Chastity called her family member in South Dakota to wire her money. The cops were alerted, and all five teens were arrested. Chastity stood by Rob throughout the entire proceedings that followed. They were videotaped making out right after being arrested, and she continued to write to him while he was on death row. Heather was initially charged with her four friends, but was later found to be uninvolved with the planning and murder of her parents. In the stolen car, the police found a bloody sheet and spells that were apparently to summon a whole-ass demon. This cult was dragged in the media and vampirism was put under a spotlight, creating a very real Salem-like vampire hunt. Rod initially stoked this fire by blaming another vampire gang for the murder. Thankfully, this case was handled by detectives that were open-minded enough to the culture to distinguish between what was vampirism and what was an exploitation of the idea. They talked to Rod's previous vampire family, which was headed by a man named Jaden. At the time, Jaden was the leader of one of the last vampire clans in Murray, Kentucky. When they met Rod, he had his first experience with a tight-knit family. Jaden and his family members not only drink from each other in a give-and-take fashion that goes beyond the physical act, they're insanely respectful of each other and their shared morals. Rod wanted violence and he didn't find it with them. After a physical confrontation where he challenged Jaden's leadership, Jaden kicked him to the curb. This vendetta was real but it was not the cause of the murder. The biggest issue that the cops were able to find that led to Rod's mindset that day were actually court dates dealing with allegations of animal abuse and violence against others. The day that Rod was supposed to appear in court the murders took place. Rod wasn't trying to save anybody he was running period. During the trial Jennifer Windorf spoke against Farrell saying that she didn't blame her sister. Rod didn't fool anyone and didn't really seem to try. He mocked the media cameras and was cavalier about his future visit to the chair of death. Rod said that he was out of control and enjoyed it. He cited his tough childhood and over-sexualized vampire-like relationship with his mom for how fucked he was. Farrell recruited other troubled teens that he could manipulate and helped to begin a vampire family with his new twisted values. Chastity and Dana supported the idea that Heather wasn't involved and that Rod was behind the entire murder. They knew of the murders beforehand, but did not aid in them. Heather, however, wasn't even told about her parents' death until Chastity callously broke the news to her after they had gone too far to turn back. Rod relished in the pain that he caused her and gave her something of her mother's to torture her and reinforce what he was capable of doing. Rod Farrell underplayed his role in the murder the same way that Manson did. But in this case, he wasn't trying to start a race war. He was trying to create killers who wanted it just as much as he did. He wanted to hide behind the name of Vampire so that he could pretend that his bloodlust was not only forgivable, but a sign of his masculinity and power. Heather didn't want what he considered paradise, so he punished her. When his first cover story fell through, he pled guilty and was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. From there, he became the youngest American on death row. In 2019, Farrell received a rehearing based on his age at the time of the murder. At the end of the new hearing, the judge ruled him irreparably corrupt and decided that he was not a candidate for time served, and for good reason. Immediately after Wendorf's murder, he told his clan that he wanted to kill other people and would continue to do so in New Orleans. During the trial, he was over the top. He played into the idea that the media was portraying about him and his clan members. In fact, the only time that Rod showed any kind of real emotion was when his estranged father took the stand and wouldn't use his name. And it is true that Farrell had a terrible upbringing, and a spotlight was shown into that while the defense tried to fight the death penalty. Rod grew up with a sexual predator as a mother who introduced him to Vampire the Masquerade. She not only encouraged the violence of the game, she taught him that women were to be submissive to these vampire men and was even arrested for trying to solicit sex from a 14-year-old child that she believed would be able to sire her into the vampire world. Farrell also alleged that he was the victim of sexual abuse at the hands of his maternal grandfather throughout his childhood. He said that he once confided in his mom, and she got into a huge blowout with her father, but then continued to live with her parents and give her father access to her child. Chastity Kesey, Farrell's girlfriend at the time, pled guilty to two reduced counts of principal-to-third-degree murder, one count of principal armed robbery, and principal to armed robbery. Her involvement consisted of her knowing what Farrell planned and not intervening. She said she didn't believe him. Regardless, she knew that he might be planning it and still drove Heather away, oblivious of what was happening to her family. She received 10 years in prison. Dana Cooper was given the same charges, made plea deals, and received 17 years. Her sentence was higher because she was 18 at the time. Scott Anderson received two life sentences for his involvement being found guilty of felony murder. His sentence was later reduced during a rehearing, and he was given a new sentence due to the fact that he didn't participate in the murder or have foreknowledge of it. His life sentence was reduced to 40 years and his earliest date of release will be 2032. He claimed to not believe Farrell was really going to commit the murder until Farrell began to attack Mr. Windorf. For some reason, Anderson also believes that Heather was the mastermind behind the entire event and faked her surprise. He believed that she planned the event and was Farrell's puppeteer throughout the entire situation. However, this is something that every other person involved that night refutes, even Farrell himself. Wendorf was suspected of the murder and it had a very negative impact on her life. She lost her family that night. Why would she believe that someone she trusted was capable of that? Why would she think that this game that she was playing was real? Vampires weren't real. She made the mistake of trusting a killer. She made offhand comments that any 14-year-old might. She was living in a fantasy world that Ferrell created. He's the one who changed the rules, and her family paid the ultimate price. This case always horrifies me on a personal level because I felt like that weird girl at 14. I wasn't into the vampire lifestyle, but I was the biggest Harry Potter fan in the universe and wore a cloak at home for close to a year. In the same way, I had a family member that considered Harry Potter to be the work of the devil, and there were churches that were burning books at the time. As tame as Harry Potter is, at the time it was considered a really controversial topic. I brought it up at Thanksgiving once just to be a brat. This could have happened to literally anyone and it's heartbreaking. Heather was very quiet in the media for the most part, but did an interview 10 years after the murders that I found to be very telling of the fact that she was a child when she lost her parents. In this 2006 interview, Heather was quoted as saying, I regret that I was paralyzed with fear. You can't really anticipate what you're going to do and how you're going to deal with the situation if you've never been in anything like that before. After the murder, she ended up in foster care because her family needed space to heal. At 17, she gave herself a nickname and moved to North Carolina for college. At the time of the interview, she was married and studying sculpting at art school. After a break with her family, she was even able to reconnect with her grandmother before she passed away. She was able to move on and start fresh. Unfortunately, as of 2019, the Wendorf sisters are still estranged. And I get it. Heather introduced Rod to her family. What a thing to forgive. And Jennifer is credited with pointing the finger at Heather, even though Heather claims that Jennifer told her she never made those comments in the first place. Either way, it uprooted their lives. Maybe it's easier to live separately without the constant reminder of what happened and their places in it. Farrell drove 750 miles to collect someone who he considered to be his family member. He planned the murder, and he bragged all the way up to that night. He tricked Heather into thinking she was just running away, preying on her fear and vulnerability. He proved himself to be a demon, irreparably corrupt. That's it for this week. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to check me out on Instagram and at nitaferris.com. I also wanted to let you know about our Patreon page. There will be two bonus episodes a month, a 90s-style sticker collections, and other fans who really wish that the bronze was a place we could all go to hang out. You will also find my case notes, including all the cringy true crime 90s movies involved, which books I read, and the most helpful articles. I want to hear from you. Comment me the cases that you hope I cover, which Buffy episodes you're most excited to re-watch, and what you're pairing your Buffy binge with. Tune in next week for episode one of season one of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Welcome to the Hellmouth, and a brand new case inspired by the episode. Can you guess what it is?